Can George Orr be an alternative to War War or just a pretext for it? A little one-segment podcast looking specifically at Russia's latest, shall I say, diplomatic overtures, though we don't know how diplomatic they are, over the current Ukraine crisis. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. I will confess I was in two minds about doing a podcast this weekend because I was trying desperately to get some other projects off my desk. But then on Friday, the Russians came up with two draft treaties, which they actually immediately publicised. One intended for the United States and one for NATO as a whole, which was purportedly their kind of response to the current escalating crisis. So I thought as a compromise myself... I would produce this little one-segment podcast. Anyway, I mean, if nothing else, it's actually quite striking the very fact that uh, the Russians presented these treaties publicly. That's definitely not the usual done thing. And although the two clearly have different emphases, nonetheless, essentially, they're putting forward the same vision of a future European and Eurasian security architecture. So let me run through them together. First of all, the most obvious one, no more NATO expansion, and in one case actually Ukraine is is singled out specifically. And that obviously must be some kind of formal, legal and binding statement. I mean, it's worth noting that there is a belief, after all, on the part of the Russians that they were conned back in the day. And I think actually the right is with them. Yes, they never had a formal binding agreement that NATO would not expand eastwards. But repeatedly, they were either directly told or allowed to assume that this was the case. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And also, it's worth noting that no country has some kind of grand legal right to be a member of NATO. NATO is a club. And the members of the club can decide who can join and what kind of criteria they make their decision based upon. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not my way of saying, oh, NATO should be telling Ukraine, telling Georgia, whoever, that they, they can't join. But there's a certain amount of, I think, slightly synthetic outrage at Russia even making such demands, as if it's somehow denying them a natural right. Well, that it's not. The second main provision is the idea that there should be no bases or NATO exercises or really any kind of NATO security architecture in the former Soviet states that are not already members of NATO, so that's not as, not the Baltic states, East Europe, Caucasus, Central Asia. I would note that there's no provisions there to stop the Russians from doing so. I'll come back to that in a moment. Thirdly, there should be no US or Russian deployments where other sides could regard that as a threat 
And, well, wow. I mean, the opportunities for abuse in that are large enough to swallow all of Tower Bridge. I mean, the very notion of just simply you have to be able to claim that you feel threatened by it. Well, no, I don't think so. Fourthly, that there should be no intermediate or short-range um, nuclear missiles located in areas which can hit the other. So, OK, so that would therefore mean that Russia would oblige itself not to base any in Kaliningrad or along its western flank, but also the Russians. That's actually not a terrible one. And finally, though, the key point to make is that none of this is really limiting to Russia beyond that very last clause. Yes, Russia also you know, says it accepts the, the view that security is indivisible, the authority of the UN Security Council and so forth, blah, blah, blah. But it's certainly not in any way presenting itself in the position where it pulls back. I mean, for example, think of the existing, admittedly not too huge, but could easily be ramped up, military deployment in Belarus. No question about that ever being sort of constrained by this. According to the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister, Sergei Rabkov, he said, look, this is a take-it-or-leave-it deal. There is no scope for negotiation. We should not, however, take him wholly at his word. Again, it's quite usual for the Russians to come across as inordinately and extraordinarily hard-nosed at the beginning of any negotiation process. And frankly, you do not put out these kind of things unless you regard them as the start of a conversation. And on a separate note, we know something I've, I've talked about in the past, that Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, now he's hit his 70th birthday, has been... I wouldn't quite say desperate, but certainly seeking for some time to be allowed to retire. So it could actually be that Rebkov, as one of the potential candidates to succeed him, is in some ways making his own pitch to show that he can be every bit as resolute, brackets, bloody-minded, close brackets, as, as the old boss. So again, you know, there, there's also likely to be human factors involved in quite how this is being pitched. So... What is going on? First of all, I do think it's interesting that this has been made public right from the start, which, as I said, is a definite breach with usual diplomatic practice. So, yes, on the one hand, this is essentially performative. But also, I do think that it may well reflect a certain need on the Russians' part, a feeling that they need to force the pace of the discussion and also to stress the need to make something that is generally not just accepted, not just with a nod and a wink, but on a legal basis. And it's quite interesting that they seem to regard 1997 as being almost like the kind of baseline status quo that they want to bring things back to. And 1997 was, after all, the date of the signing of the NATO-Russia Founding Act, which provided for NATO-Russia Council and, and various other sort of means to allow Russia and the military alliance to engage and hopefully deconflict. Well, at the time, Yeltsin said that it gave Russia a veto on any further NATO expansion. Now, he was wrong. He was wrong, there was nothing written in that, and I don't really think, well, I certainly haven't seen anything, others can certainly correct me, that anything was actually explicitly said to him that should have given him that impression. But nonetheless, I think this does reflect not just an attempt by Yeltsin maybe to, to bounce NATO, but also actually a genuine view of a lot of people in Moscow. 
So they were wrong then, just as they'd been wrong at other times, thinking that they had some kind of an understanding. And so that, this is why I think everything is being made much more public and with, it, with the determination to have things encoded in written statements and commitments. Okay, secondly, though, one of the views that's being advanced is that these demands, which are, let's be perfectly honest, ludicrous and wholly unacceptable, Let's get that out there now. There is no way that the West, for whatever reason, could accept this, not least because it would strand not just countries that want to join NATO, but countries that are in NATO in a kind of a limbo position. So to some, the fact that such a ludicrously ambitious agenda for Russia has been put forward by Moscow demonstrates that Moscow is not only not serious about negotiation, is counting on the West rejecting it in order to provide it as a pretext for perhaps military action. Well, it could be. I mean, again, who knows? Unfortunately, we are in this rather um, agnostic realm at the moment when we can't really know. And anyone who tells you they know what Putin wants or thinks at the moment, treat them with considerable caution. So it could be, but I, I can't help feeling that if actually you were talking about a war in Ukraine... It seems a lot easier to try and generate uh, a pretext in Ukraine um, and probably, you know, along the line of contact. I really don't think it's beyond the, the wit of Russia's active measure specialists to find some way of triggering what they can at least present as a you know, Ukrainian attack or similar rather than go through all this kind of grand theatricality of presenting Europe and North America with a treaty as a basis for explaining our conflict on Ukraine's borders. Because if anything, NATO now becomes more engaged, not less. You know, the Russians have chosen to make the Ukrainian conflict part of a much wider attempt to renegotiate the whole east-west strategic architecture. Well, as I said, why, why on earth would they want to make what happens in Ukraine more important rather than less important for NATO? I mean, I, I don't know. Again, there is a, there's a problem with uh, trying to apply what seem to be common sense strictures. But nonetheless, I don't know. The pretext argument honestly doesn't work for me. And I hope I'm right on that. And therefore, actually, we come back to what in many ways is the most obvious point, which is actually that this is instead... An invitation, a very, very high bid, but nonetheless an invitation to join a negotiating process and a, and a conversation. Because there are things to negotiate. I mean, there is no way of getting around the fact that at the moment the, the fundamental basis for the relationship between NATO and, and Russia is in a pretty bad shape. And actually addressing some of the concerns makes sense. Now, again, that does not mean buying security for Western Europe at the expense of Eastern Europe. And any room for negotiation, which absolutely is there, must inevitably be balanced at the same time with deterrence. Because without deterrence, then your hand to negotiate is phenomenally weak. And likewise, without negotiation, then deterrence is really just an attempt to intimidate. And for a regime such as Putin's, an invitation to strike back in similar terms. So it's crucial to engage. And on that, well, first of all, 
some elements of the proposed treaties are not entirely unviable. There's stuff about deconfliction and so forth. Now, look, this is by no means the important elements of the treaty. I mean, in some ways, I can't help but feel that they're just the kind of the chrome to, to hide the, the core Russian demands. But the point is, they provide the basis for actual discussion. You don't just simply have to turn around and say, every single word in these documents is unacceptable and antithetical to our views. You can actually say, there are issues with which we don't agree. There are issues which we think there is mileage. Let us talk. Secondly, there is then scope to turn this into a long, drawn-out and in some ways um, tedious process, a specialist technical process, which can give some means of taking the immediate heat and passion out of the situation. In 2009, for example, then-President Dmitry Medvedev presented this as following incidents or the immediate crisis following the uh, invasion of Georgia. Anyway, his own draft, I say his own, a draft of a European security treaty. Now, in and of itself, this was just as much of a non-starter as the, the, the current draft treaties. But nonetheless, what they actually then led to was something called the Corfu process. Now, do you know much about the Corfu process? Of course you don't, because there is really nothing much to know. Um, it didn't really get to anything. But on the other hand, it did, at least for a while, provide a basis for discussion, for talk. And that, in and of itself, can actually defuse processes. There has been, for example, this, this suggestion that there should be talks held in Geneva. This is something that Ryabkov was saying, you know, talks in Geneva to address Russia's various security concerns. Well, another suggestion is that, in turn, should be treated as the preliminary stage for the wider discussions which are going to take place in 2025 um, to mark the 50th anniversary of the creation of the OSCE, the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is likely to be held in Helsinki. 2025. I mean, again, this is the thing. Actually, if you can build a process which promises possibly to reach some kind of wider agreement, but years away, you are in effect creating a situation in which actually the Russians have both an incentive to think in, in longer terms and also you know, a chance to, to get to, to say their piece. Because I think this is a third and crucial point. You know, anything like this, any kind of broad negotiation process, as long as it's not really embarrassingly and humiliatingly obvious, um, a sop to the Russians that is not intended to go anywhere. It gives the Russians a sense that they are being listened to. And when I say the Russians, obviously I'm talking about Putin and, and the people close to him, people who generally, we, we know, respond very, very badly to any sense that they feel they're being patronised, marginalised, excluded or ignored. So, it gives them a chance to vent. And we really shouldn't un understate the value of that. It's not the only thing, of course, but nonetheless, it is important. It also gives Putin a chance to say that he forced something on the West, but without there actually having to be any real commitment behind it. Remember, you know, Putin is in a situation in which he has, he has to an extent, committed a certain amount of, of political capital as well as economic capital to his current troop build-up. Now, look, I'm not saying that we should therefore be worried about him and worried about his uh, reputation. 
Of course not. He's a big boy. He made his own choices. But let's be absolutely honest about this. If we back him into a corner in which he has to accept an embarrassing climb down or escalate the situation yet further, well, I, mean, I wouldn't know which way he's going to jump, but I certainly wouldn't exclude the possibility precisely that he will jump in the direction of escalation, feeling that he doesn't really have that much to lose. Now, again, this escalation could take many forms. It doesn't have to be some kind of massive blitzkrieg invasion of, of, of Ukraine or whatever. But nonetheless, it is not about caring for Putin. It is about ensuring that the chances to reach some kind of a peaceful settlement of a current crisis are the greatest, that we should not forget his need to at least be able to have some kind of face-saving way of, of stepping back from the brink. And remember, one of the reasons that are sometimes advanced for why now is that Russia's leaders probably feel that the window of opportunity for them to be able to throw their weight around, for them to be able to make some kind of substantial difference to the whole security architecture of Europe, may well be closing for a whole variety of reasons that I won't go into now. But nonetheless, if that is the case, then surely, again, that makes another good reason why we should be playing for time. Because we absolutely want to be in a situation in which they will feel that that window is, is that much more closed he said, wishing he hadn't continued this window metaphor. So we have all kinds of good reasons to talk to the Russians. We have all kinds of reasons why it's important to engage, not to just hand things over just simply for the sake of peace. A bad peace, well, is a bad peace. And frankly, a bad peace does not really tend to last. So no, it's not about throwing anyone under the bus. It's not about rewarding aggression. It is simply about recognising the situation that the current Russian leadership feels under threat, it feels aggrieved, it feels it has genuine and legitimate security concerns that are not being addressed. And although in reality there's really not much that we can or should do materially to address many of those concerns, because they are frankly the, the products of paranoias um, of an inability to grasp the extent to which countries such as Ukraine have moved on, and also a dramatic misunderstanding of what the West stands for, what NATO is there for, and such like. So we can't necessarily fix these problems, but the point is we can at least allow them to raise them. We can at least make it clear that we're not just simply excluding them straight away. And to a large degree, we can hope to talk out this crisis. It is, after all, good to talk. And that's the end of this little short um, one, one segment in Moscow Shadows. The, the next one will be back, I hope, to its usual two-segment glory. Um, indeed, I actually very specifically hope that, because the main reason for producing a hurried one-segment one is because there's some kind of a crisis and we could do without a crisis over this particular Christmas season. And if I don't manage to record anything before the 25th of December, whatever you may celebrate, I wish you all the very best with it. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. 
Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Thank you.